The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, let's get started. Wow, we're a little bit over. That's all right, we'll go a little bit over. No big deal. All right, you all have uh, one of my outlines, the communicable attribute. If you did not get an outline, raise your hand, and um, I'm not promising we'll get you one. I just want to see your hands up. You know, just uh, who is passing them out? Are they out? Oh, my goodness, they're out. We underestimated again. Would you mind? Here's my original, so... Okay, um, this is systematic theology. We are talking about uh, the doctrine of God. And uh, the beginning of discussing the doctrine of God, uh, we're talking about his attributes. And now the study of the attributes will break into two different categories. What are the two different categories of attributes that we've talked about? Communicable and incommunicable. It's not a disease. It's nothing nasty. It just has to do with how we do or do not share in God's nature. Uh, I was at, uh, at Mark Dever's church this past Sunday. He's a friend of mine, a pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And he talked about that little, um, little poem that you used to say when you were a kid, remember? God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food, right? Well, he said to some degree in a very weak way that represents the incommunicable and communicable attributes of God. God is great would be the incommunicable attributes, the ways that God is great, the way that he is specifically, and I would think, different from us. Communicable attributes, God is good, uh, would be the uh, attributes that we do share to some degree with God. All right, And we're going to be talking about some of those tonight. Um, now, it's my understanding that you've already been over some of this. I've given you an outline from Grudem of all of the attributes, um, the communicable attributes. He breaks them into five different major categories. Attributes describing God's being, his essential nature. You see that. Attributes, uh, mental attributes, the thinking of God. Uh, moral attributes, the attributes of purpose and summary attributes. That's the way he arranges it. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of different ways to come at the attributes of God. Before we get too, too far here, what is an attribute? What does that mean? A characteristic. Character trait. A description of God. So you can see they're listed here numerically from 1 to 20. Attributes describing God's being. Spirituality and invisibility are those two. Spirituality, you've already covered, um, means that God is spirit. He's not made up of atoms and molecules. Now, we don't really know what a spiritual being is, do we? Because we're so physical, all right? But the fact of the matter is, God has an essential nature that is spiritual. God is spirit. Now, of course, we believe in the incarnation as Christians that Jesus took on a physical human body. We believe in the resurrection body that Jesus presently has a res resurrection body. We believe those things. But before Jesus had a body, he was God. And he doesn't need a body in order to be God. He doesn't need a body in order to exist. In this way, this is, would you say this is a communicable or incommunicable attribute? Spirituality. You'd think incommunicable. But what about those that have gone on before us? Think about it. Those that have died in the faith. 
What are they right now? They're spirits. And it talks about this in the book of Hebrews. Spirits of righteous men made perfect. Hebrews chapter 12. So what are they made up of? Your grandfather or your father. What are they made up of right now? Not atoms, not molecules. They're spirits, right? And so this is, in fact, a communicable attribute. Yes. Touch me, see, a a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Well, clearly he is demonstrating there that he has a resurrection body. He is physically raised from the dead. So Jesus is incarnate, even in his resurrection state. He is in the flesh. That's what carnate means, in the flesh. He's in a body, and he has that body now. He's the only one in the universe that does. Nobody else has a resurrection body but Jesus. He's the only one. We're all going to get one because he's first fruit from the dead, right? We're all going to get one. And it's called in 1 Corinthians 15 a spiritual body. Now, I don't know what that is. I've told you all before. You know, it's a good thing for a pastor to admit when he doesn't know what something is. I don't know what a spiritual body is and neither do you. Okay, but someday you're going to find out if you're a Christian. Personally, you're going to find out what a spiritual body is. I believe you're going to find out either way because there's a resurrection both of the righteous and the wicked. And uh, everybody gets, I believe, a body that will never perish. But if you're an unbeliever, you're going to find yours in hell. And if you're a believer, then in heaven. All right, that's a good question. Spirituality is a communicable attribute. We are spirit. We are also physical. Invisibility is a communicable attribute. It means God cannot be seen. All right, And it goes together with spirituality. You can, you can see that. And it is communicable because, again, the saints who have gone before us are invisible and yet they exist. Invisibility. Uh, we talked also about the knowledge of God, and I want to begin there. Thank you so much for doing that. Raise your hand now, and the hand raising actually is a promise that you may get something. So, Jack, thank you. Oh, well, that works out well. Manna from heaven. Okay. We're going to be talking, I want to begin, I know that uh, last week you talked somewhat about the knowledge of God, but open your Bibles to Psalm 139. I couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk a little bit about God's knowledge, even though you touched on it, because I've been, in my scripture memorization, I've been working on some Psalms, and one of them that I've been going over for the last three months is Psalm 139. Oh, I hate to leave it, I really do, because I do, I do these verses for 100 days and I have to go on because I want to learn the new verses. But Psalm 139 has been delicious to me. It's like eating your favorite dessert. There's so many good things in Psalm 139. You could be thinking about it the rest of your life. But in Psalm 139, it's very familiar, but let's just look at the first section here. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold hold me fast. If I say... Surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. Let's stop there. Now, as you look through those verses, what does David say that God knows? What does he know? 
Okay, but let's break it apart. He knows everything, and that's what omniscience means. But what does he know, according to this psalm? Every physical movement that David makes, how do you get that out of this psalm? Get it out of the psalm. How does... All right, read it. When I sit, when I rise... Now we'll get to that one. But in the next, what's the next verse? You discern my going out and my lying down. So that when I sit, when I rise, when I go out, when I, when I lie down, everything. So that's obviously that is symbolic for every physical action that I do. You know them. What else does he say that God knows? Thoughts. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Wow. You know, you always kind of think of your brain as kind of yours, right? And what you do in there is your business. But consider it this way. In a healthy walk with God, how much of your communication with God is in your brain that nobody could perceive? Just in your mind between you and God. How many times do you speak to God without moving your lips? Countless times. But you want God only to read those good thoughts and not the other ones too? You know what I'm talking about? God, I'm on now. Okay, pay attention to me now because now I'm praying, now I'm worshiping, now I'm doing this. But don't think about those other times. No, no, he perceives all of David's thoughts. What else does David say that God knows? Words. You, you know my words completely. Well, what words does he talk about? Okay, but what does he say? Before a word is on my tongue. You know it completely, O oh Lord. Now, that word before is kind of open-ended. How much before? Before even I know it. Before you know it. Okay. Could it be the instant? All right, maybe the synapses, the, the, the speech part of the brain has already fired the nerves down there, but your tongue hasn't moved yet. God knows what that, that nerve pattern is going. He knows what you're going to say before it gets to your tongue. Does it include that? Yes, sir. Yeah. How about before the brain fires off those nerve patterns? Yes. How about before your mother was born? Yes. And back before the foundation of the world? Yes. There's no end to it, right? Before, just as before, right? Completely. He knows my thoughts completely. He knows my words. He studies them. By the way, after you've said them, he takes a record of them because you'll have to give an account for them on the day of judgment, Jesus said. Every careless word you've spoken. All right, what else does he say he knows? It's on the sheet if you wondered. <laughs> He hems me in behind and before, right? He's watched me. I'm, I'm kind of hemmed in. Do you feel hemmed in? It's not, I mean, Psalm 139 can get oppressive, actually. It's like there's no wiggle room here. There's no way to escape. Well, you shouldn't be trying to escape from this being. He is God. And what does David say at the end of the psalm? Is he trying to escape? He's saying, search me and know me. I give up. I surrender. I can't beat it anyway. I want you to search me. I want you to know me completely. You hem me in behind before, but just uh, we could be on this the rest of the evening, but he knows David's secrets. That's what verses 5 through 12 gets to, right? He knows all the secret stuff. You know, even the darkness is not dark to God. He knows it all because he knew me actually before I was, you know, when I was in my mother's womb, when I was, it was secret before she even knew that she was pregnant. You knew what you were doing because you were doing it. You were knitting me together in my mother's womb. So he knows all the secret stuff. He knows everything. And basically, look at verse 16. Somebody read verse 16 again. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What does that mean? All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. 
So does that mean, Ron, that you shouldn't take care of your body? I mean, you shouldn't be in good cardiovascular health? What does that mean? I mean, all of our, the day of our death is fixed. <coughs> and yet we should take good care of our bodies. It's a matter of stewardship, a matter of fruitfulness, quality of life. It's a matter of honoring God. But the fact of the matter is God knows absolutely everything ahead of time, the knowledge of God. Psalm 139. It's incredible, isn't it? And, and David, what does David feel about this that he's ruminating on? What does he feel about it as he goes over it? He stops for a minute and, and he says two things about it. It's too, too wonderful for me. What does that mean, Mike, that it's too wonderful? I can't handle it. It's definitely an overload thing. It's like one of those circuit breaker tripper things. You know, It just goes click and then it's over. I can't get it. And David is writing the psalm. Do you think that Paul understood Romans? Do you really think he understood it? He understood it better than you. But does he understand as well as God understands what's being said there? No way. That's why he stops in, in <coughs> chapter 11 and says how unsearchable are the paths of God. I can't figure this out. It's beyond me. And so David is saying the same thing. He says that it's, it's too wonderful for me, but then what else does he say? In verse, I think it's verse 16, 17, verse 17. What else does he say? Yeah. It's precious to me that God thinks so much about David. And I think that no, no English translation has gotten it right. I'm convinced of this. So I know I'm being bold here. But actually, the Hebrew would support this translation. How precious concerning me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the number of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grain of sand. In other words, you think about me more than they are grains of sand on the seashore. I think that that certainly is the flow of the entire psalm. It's very me-centered, right? You have searched me and you know me, whatever. Well, that can be extended to everybody on the face of the earth, right? So that's even more wonderful. If six billion people are thought about more numerous than the grains of sand in the sea, how can you understand the mind of God? He's thinking that much about each person? Yes, he is. It's astonishing, really. That is the knowledge of God. All right, that's one thing, the mental... Can you understand the mind of God? And the thing, yeah, what? What? I thought I did till tonight. Yeah, well, I remember a book titled "Your God is Too Small." I think all, all of our our view of God is just too small. We just don't understand the the mind of God. And I think the unbelievable arrogance of the devil to think he can take this God on and beat him, to think that he can beat him. And that's why even worse are the devil's little henchmen, human beings that are carrying out the devil's will, taking on God and mocking him and thinking, you know, let us throw their chains asunder. Let's take on God and his anointed one. He laughs. It's nothing for him to defeat human beings. Our little brains, it's a, this is it, just this little box here. God knows everything. All right? So is your mind blown now? Is this amazing? All right? Let's go on. Let's look at the next attribute. The wisdom of God. Now, the knowledge of God is, is one thing, and it supports the wisdom, but the two are related. Grudem gives this definition. God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. So, if you could look at it this way, the knowledge is that basically God can amass this whole huge quantity of stuff and know it all. But wisdom is he sifts through the stuff to pick out the best of it all, right? It'd be like that merchant looking for fine pearls and the world's supply of pearls is brought to him and he's able to bring out those high quality pearls that are of the best value and say these are the best pearls. 
So he's able to sift through all of the potentialities of this world and figure out what is the best thing in every case. And not only that, but the best intermediate things to get to that best thing. He, he knows for you the best goal. And the best goal for you individually is to be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. It can't get any better than that. And if you're a child of God, that's what he has selected for you. He's chosen that goal for you. He's chosen that destiny. That's what predestination means. He's chosen that you should be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So he has chosen the best for you. That's why David says in Psalm 16, he says, the, the lot has fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. He's chosen good things for me. All right. But not only has he chosen the best end for you, he's figured out how to get you there. He's figured out how to get you there. And not just you, but he's working in the whole world to accomplish his purposes. He knows what to do. And you can't figure it out, can you? You can't look at that and say, I know what God's up to. All right, I can see it. I know what he's doing. I know what he's doing in the war on terrorism. Or I know, let's say we lived in the World War II or 1939, 1940. I understand why he's allowing Hitler to, to win battle after battle after battle. I get it. I understand. Do you really? Do you understand all of what's going on there? No, you don't. But God understands how to get through world history to accomplish his ends. The wisdom of God. He always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. Now, let's look at the support from Scripture. First of all, God is wise in his basic nature. He is a wise God. Romans 16:27 says, To the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's a benediction to the only wise God. In the NAS translation of Job 9.4, it says that God is wise in heart and mighty in strength who has defied him without harm. I mean, <laughs> do you really want to take this God on? He is wise in heart. At the heart of his being, he is wise. He knows what he's doing. And, and why do we question him? Do you ever question him in, in your life? Think about that now. When, when some dark providence comes your way, do you start to murmur against God? Do you question him and say, you don't know what you're doing? God, surrender control of my life to me for just a week and I'll get this thing fixed up. Then I'll give it back to you and you can navigate on as best you can. Isn't that about what we're saying when we murmur against God when things come our way? And I do it too. Believe me, I'm not standing up here like some preacher saying I don't have this problem. We all are tempted to murmur against God when, when providences go against us, so we believe. But God knows what he's doing because he's wise. Job 12:13 says, To God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. So God in his basic nature is wise. God is also wise in his ordering of creation. Psalm 104 is one of the psalms I've been working on. Uh, it's a masterpiece. Basically, the, the psalmist, David, I believe, goes through all of God's physical creation and shows how wisely ordained and arranged it is. He's got it all working, doesn't he? You talk about these interlocking ecosystems, right? And how God provides for each of them. He provides a space, a place, and food for each one of them. Only God would ordain that a blue whale would eat plankton. Think about that, you know? But God does that kind of thing, you know? This monstrously huge being moving all as one entity, all those cells, the blood and the blubber and the baleen and all this stuff moving through with its mouth open looking for microscopic stuff that it sifts through. Uh, only God would do that. And it gets enough every day somehow. gets enough nourishment every single day. Isn't that incredible? 
But God figured that out. And it says in Psalm 104.24, How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. God is a wise being. His wisdom in ordering creation is seen everywhere you look. God's ultimate wisdom or greatest wisdom is seen in, um, hey, Chris, in uh, the plan of redemption. Without, without really looking at these verses... How is God's wisdom demonstrated in the plan of redemption? How is that a wise thing? Think about it. There's a few seats over here. You don't need to be on the floor. We'll, we'll wait for you. Not interrupting. We're glad to have you. There's a seat here and one back there. One toward the back. Thank you. How does the plan of redemption show the wisdom of God? What do you think, Mike? How does the plan of redemption... That is so right. <clears throat> Before the foundation of the world, he knew that we would sin, and he'd made provision, a plan. And what a plan! It's been unfolding now for thousands of years, right? And the essence of the plan is to destroy the sin, right? And the sin is this independent, arrogant king or queen of my life thing, this pride thing. And so he humbles us. So how do we get saved? Do we have to do some great thing, some big achievement? Do we have to go to one of the Himalaya mountains and pick a flower and eat it? I mean, how do you get saved? You know, what do you, what do, you do to get saved in the Christian system? Confess and believe a message you hear. Well, at least you can boast that you did that. I mean, there's no boasting, is there? There's nothing left. And what message? It's a weird one, isn't it? A dead Jewish carpenter, blood on the ground, he saves you that way. That is the wisdom of God. Only God could have figured that out. No human would have put that together as the means of our salvation. Every human system of personal salvation is one of human achievement, isn't it? It's all, I can do it. Let me do it. I'll work it out. But not God's way. His, his way is, I'll do it. You believe me. You trust me, and I'll do it. And when you get to heaven, you'll see that I gave you the faith anyway. I gave you the faith. We know it now because the Scripture tells us. But this is the wisdom of God. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 talks about that. Turn in your Bibles and look there if you would. But there's a clustering of the word wisdom or wise in 1 Corinthians 1, isn't there? And the reason is that you know Corinth was very near Athens and it was in Greece and those Greeks just prided themselves on their wisdom. They've been at it a long time. I mean, Christianity was a relative Johnny-come-lately in the, in the marketplace of ideas. They'd already had Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. All those guys had already come and gone. And so the guys up there on the... Uh, Areopagus, they were discussing all these ideas and along comes Paul and they called him a seed picker, a babbler. He was like, he was a minor leaguer. It'd be like, you know, the, uh, the best baseball team, the Anaheim Angels this year or whatever, looking at a bush leaguer coming to, you know, it's like, it's nothing. It's not even worth talking about. Well, God has ordained that, hasn't he? He's ordained that the gospel seems foolish to people. He's ordained that. And look what he says. Um, in chapter 1, verse uh, 18 through 31 is the whole section, but look at verse 23 and 24. Somebody read that if you would. Verse 23 and actually begin at verse 22. 22 through 24. Isn't that beautiful? Christ is the power of God and he is the wisdom of God. 
And then the next verse says, The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God stronger than man's strength. You see that? And look what he says in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. He says, you want to know about wisdom? Okay, he says, first of all, I'm not, I, didn't, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Not here, spouting off a system of wisdom. We're not about that. But then he stops himself in chapter 2. He says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. Do you see what he's saying? It is actually very wise if you're spiritually mature. You see it. You begin to realize just how wise the gospel is because it slays our pride, doesn't it? It gets the job done. When the gospel does its work, you end up humble, submissive, brokenhearted, poor in spirit, relying on God back where you should have been all along because you are, after all, a creature and he is the creator. right? So it's a very wise thing. And he says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but it is not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom Listen to what he says. A wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. That is deep. God figured this gospel out before the first day. Before he said, let there be light, he had the gospel worked out. And that's human way of speaking. wasn't working out. It's like, what shall I do? What shall I do? There was no deliberation. He knew what he would do. And then Paul in Romans 11.33 says so beautifully, Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. What is Paul talking about there in context? Romans 11, what is he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about Romans 1 through 11. And, uh, you know, I preached a long time in there, and I thought I was going fast. Now, you may not have thought that. You thought, oh, man, four verses a week. That's so slow. The fact is, that stuff is so dense, you could be the rest of your life working on it. And Paul, I think he put his pen down and just, actually he didn't write it, Manuensis wrote it, but he just stopped and said, this is incredible. Oh, the death, the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his paths. What does that mean, by the way? How unsearchable his paths. How, how are his paths beyond tracing out? What does that mean? You can't, get any of your you can't even start. You can't trace them out. can't figure it out. It's too deep for you. The analogy I've used is you want to sound the depths, you don't have enough string. All right? You run out of string before you hit the bottom. It's too deep for you. That's what he's getting at. So the wisdom of God is evident in the plan of redemption, isn't it? God was very wise in putting the gospel together. Uh, God is also very wise in putting the church together. Very wise in putting the church together. This is seen in who he adds to the church and in how he gifts them or puts them together, right? Very wise. He's wise in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-30 when he says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the wise to shame, shame the, the... God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why is he trying to shame us here? Why so much language about shaming, shaming, shaming? Why? Verse 29, which says what? So that no one may boast before him. Why does he not want anyone to boast? Because that's the essence of sin. I was telling you about that pride. We're not going to boast about ourselves. We will be boasting. Oh, yes, we'll be boasting, but not about ourselves. Who will be boasting about? About Jesus and his accomplishment. I'll boast about the Lord. As it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Okay, so it, you know, boasting is expelled by the gospel. It's just evicted forcibly. 
And God does that by how he puts the church together. Look across the church. Would you say that according to this verse, the church's average IQ is higher or lower than the world's average IQ? According to these verses, lower. Church's average economic state, higher or lower than the world? Lower. Average position of influence, higher or lower than the world? Lower, lower, and lower, right? Now, I know that's hard for Americans to hear. We're an anomaly, folks. We really are, for the most part. We're an anomaly. And God has done it for his own purposes. Oh, that we use our resources for the advancement of the gospel, because if we don't, he'll take them away. He will take them away. They need to be used for the advancement of the gospel. They're ours temporarily. All right? But the fact of the matter is, worldwide, our brothers and sisters in Christ are not in a good way. They're oppressed by the government. They're poor. They're weak. They're not influential. They're not going to win any awards for anything. They're just lowly people who God loves. And he has been very wise, hasn't he, in putting the church together that way. He's also wise in how he arranges the church, spiritual gifts and all that. I get it out of Ephesians 3, 6 and 10. <coughs> I'm sorry. One of the interesting things about the church is that only the gospel can bring genuine reconciliation between people who are warring and hate each other. You talk about, for example, Jews and Greeks. That was the paradigm Paul used. But that's really an example or paradigm of any group of people who's at odds with somebody else. Like in Rwanda, those two groups, the, the Tutsus and the Hutus, they hate each other. But do you think there are any that are Christians and love each other? I guarantee it. I guarantee it because God has chosen some from every tribe and language and people and nation and they genuinely love each other and probably all the more because of what is going on. Same thing, blacks and whites in America, you know, uh, Palestinians and Jews in the Jerusalem area. Do you think that there are some Palestinians and Jews praying for Jerusalem in that area right now? I guarantee it. I guarantee it. And why? Because the gospel has broken down that dividing wall of hostility. It's broken it down and he's made the two one. And so he says in Ephesians 3, 6, the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. Thanks, Tom. And shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 10. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The word manifold, I looked it up today. It's the only place it's used in the New Testament or, or in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a unique word, but it basically means marvelously varied and complex wisdom. Well, is the body of Christ marvelously varied and complex in how it's put together? Yeah, it is. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 talks about spiritual gifts and about the foot and the eye and the hand and all that. The body of Christ is every bit as complex as the physical body of a human being. And each of us has a role to play. And we're getting the job done in his way. And he's factored in our disobedience and our rebellion. <coughs> All right, verse, I mean, number five, the wisdom of God in God's sovereign overruling of earthly events, including 911, folks. And A.S. says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So he rules over all these things. Now, how is wisdom a communicable attribute? First of all, we are commanded to be wise, right? Commanded to be wise. In many places, Proverbs. <clears throat> um, six six. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. Don't be insulted by that. I mean, you know, we all have sluggish tendencies. You know, the fact is that God is exhorting us to be wise there and not lazy. Don't waste your time, right? Proverbs eight thirty three. Listen to my instruction. Be wise. Do not ignore it. So we're commanded to be wise. God gives wisdom to those who fear Him and ask Him. The best is James one five. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. He gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. 
truest wisdom is uh, of all is to become a Christian, right? It's the wisest thing you can do. <coughs> wisest thing. And how do you get that wisdom? Well, Scripture gives it to you. Second Timothy 3.15 says uh, that the Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's able to bring you to that point of wisdom, which the world calls foolishness. We talked about that earlier. But it's actually wisdom, and the Scripture brings you to that wisdom, doesn't it? Gives you the wisdom for salvation. And also 1 Corinthians 1.30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom uh, from God. If you're a wise person today in God's eyes, the only way you're wise in God's eyes is if you're a humble believer in Jesus Christ. And who's your wisdom? Jesus is your wisdom and you have no other. He's your only wisdom. That's what it says. But our wisdom will always be limited unlike God's. Okay, we already read Romans 11.33. J.I. Packer gives an analogy here uh, a contrary analogy, okay? Our wisdom, or the wisdom God gives us, is not like a train depot where you're, a, you're elevated up and able to see all the trains coming in and out of the station and see the timetable up on the wall. Does God do that for you? Does He bring you up into the heavenly realms and tell you what He's doing geopolitically? Does He even tell you what He's doing with you? <laughs> I mean, He doesn't even let you in on that, you know? Just trust me and, and walk every day. That's it. And I'll do what I'm doing. And I'll tell you some stuff, but not most of it. Oh, okay, when we die, is he going to tell you everything then? Probably not. You'll be satisfied with seeing him face to face. It'll be enough. Just like Job, did he get an answer to all his 36 chapters of questions? No, it, he didn't need it. It was enough to see God. And so our wisdom is different and we're not going to get it. All right, any questions about the wisdom of God we've talked about? questions you're all very very wise i commend you you have no questions <clears throat> all right truthfulness and faithfulness uh grudem couples these together and i think you'll see why he gives the definition of truthfulness here god's truthfulness means that he is the true god and that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth now those are two different things right basically Let's take the second first. What is a standard? What do we mean by that? Yeah, it's what other things are judged by. Okay? Like the National Bureau of Standards. You want to know what a meter is. They probably have some metal rod under some temperature and pressure situation there that is a perfect meter. By definition, it's a perfect meter because they've told us that that's what a meter is. And anything that's a little higher than that is not a meter. It's a meter plus something, right? So that's the standard that they've set. It's whatever 10 millionth meridian from the North Pole to this equator, whatever it is. But that's the meter, okay? What is the standard for truth? Yeah, or God himself, God's word. And I don't make much of a distinction between the two. And everything, therefore, that God utters measures up to the standard of his character. He only speaks according to his character. Everything he says and does, but it's specifically truth, everything he says lines up with his character. Do you ever say something that doesn't line up with who you really are? Well, that's a tough question, actually, okay? Because you're not a unified being, okay? You always say something that lines up with something in your character, right? But you know Romans 7, don't you? You're actually two people wrapped up in one, right? It is not actually me, but it is sin living in me that does it, says Paul in Romans 7. But at the end, as Piper pointed out at the Founders Conference, he says, 
O wretched man that I am, not O wretched sin that is in me. You see? So it's kind of a paradox here. But the fact of the matter is, you do say things you wish you hadn't said, don't you? Maybe even sometime today, you said something you wish you hadn't said. But the fact is, God never, ever says anything he wishes he hadn't said. Never. You understand that? Everything he says lines up with the absolute standard of truth. He is utterly consistent in this. He loves the truth. He loves the truth. He loves words that are true. He loves lives that are true. He loves measurements and scales that are accurate and faithful. He loves people who get up and speak the truth, even if it hurts. He loves these things. And frankly, you know, as I look at it, I only need to look to the life of Jesus to see how much this is true. And I only need to look at the life of Jesus to see how little it is true of me. How little it is true of me. You know, speaking honestly to you, I, as your pastor, I have heard many accusations of me that I am not a truth teller. And I'm, I'm, I'm a deceiver, a trick, tricky person. I tell you right now, the Bible says all men are liars. I do not, I'm speaking to you now, I do not revere the truth the way Jesus did. I don't honor the truth the way Jesus did. Now, I'm not aware of specific times that I spoke something that I knew was false. That's a lie, right? But I know this. I have pulled back sometimes from telling the full truth. Jesus never did. He never did. Very good example of this is in John chapter 5. Take a, look, a minute and look at that. I want to honor the truth the way Jesus said, pray for me. Pray for yourselves. <laughs> pray for yourselves that you would honor the truth the way that Jesus honors the truth. But look at John chapter 5. You'll see what I mean. Jesus, in chapter 5, verse 1 through 14, heals a man on the Sabbath. That got him into trouble, didn't it? Because you're not supposed to do that. And so they come after him. They come after him big. And in John chapter 5, verse 16, it says, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. What was Jesus' answer? Well, did he not understand that they were angry? Oh, he knew it. He knew it very well. Did he not understand that if he made enemies of these people, they might actually kill him? Oh, he knew that very well. Did he pull back from telling the truth at this particular moment? No, they, he was at one mile. He went 10 miles or 100 at this point. He says, um, by way of explanation of why I'm healing on the Sabbath, he says, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. The two of us are working. He's working, and I'm working. We work together. I don't do anything on my own. Whatever the father does, the son does. We, we work together. And so it's okay that I heal on the Sabbath because my father told me to do it and he's busy today too. Would you have done that? I mean, think about it now. I mean, either he's naive or he is radically in love with the truth. Now, which do you think it is? Radically in love with the truth and will do nothing but tell the truth. And did it get him killed? Absolutely it got him killed because in Matthew 26, the high priest looked at him and said, I charge you under oath by the living God. By the way, did he need the oath? He didn't need the oath fine. I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He says, I am. And then he says, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7. He told him the truth and it got him killed directly. All right. He loved the truth. Yes. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am a truth teller. Jesus loved the truth. You do not love the truth as much as Jesus. And that is a point of sanctification for you, isn't it? And for me too. It costs us something to tell the truth in this world, doesn't it? To, to your relatives who don't know the Lord. 
to friends and neighbors to be a witness for Christ? Does it cost you something to tell the truth? It does. Jesus would rather die than lie. Let's put it that way. He'd rather die than lie. But you wouldn't because the Bible says all men are liars. And so we all shade the truth. We all we, t- we treat truth like it's silly putty. We're going to arrange it a little bit and shape it the way we like it. That is, that's sin. That's, that's us. God never does that, ever. I mean, he dealt with people very honestly through Christ. He told them the truth. And not just through Christ, but through the prophets. How many times did they tell the truth to Israel? Very, very clearly told the truth. I've been reading to my kids, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God from Jonathan Edwards. Now, you're thinking I'm abusing my kids, but I'm not. Um, because you know something? It's true, isn't it? It's all true. And, uh, you know, my feeling is I, I think it's important that we understand the power of God and the wrath of God and the judgment of God. It's important. Did Jesus think it was important? Of course. He talked about it a lot. But the fact is that we shade the truth. We pull back. And we need to not do that. God is a truth teller. He loves the truth. He always keeps his promises. Do you realize that your salvation is dependent on how much God loves the truth? Because he's made a promise to you in Christ, hasn't he? And he's not going to break it. The universe will fall apart when God breaks a promise. It will cease to exist when God lies because God cannot lie. And it says in, in uh, Titus verse chapter 1, verse 2, it says, the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ago. So basically, the gospel, the hope of eternal life, is based on God's unchanging commitment to the truth. All right. So God always keeps his promises. You can read those verses there. I'm going to move on. God himself and his words are the absolute standard of truth. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them by the truth. What does it say after that? Your word is truth. Now, what's the difference between your word is truth and your word is true? What's the difference? It's a matter of the standard, you see. Your word is truth means everything must be lined up against it to be shown true or false. God's word is truth. It says it uh, very, very plainly. Isaiah 45:19, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And then in Romans 3, 4, very interesting. <clears throat> It's talking there about God's promises to Israel and the fact that the Jews didn't believe them and the Jews didn't accept them. They didn't follow. They didn't obey. Now, he's going to pick that theme up again in Romans 9, 10, and 11, why they didn't obey, but they didn't. And then he says, okay, well, will their lack of faithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? He says, not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. What does that mean? If God says A and the whole world says not A, A wins. If God says such and such and the whole world says the opposite of such and such, God is right and the world is wrong. That's it. And so God is the standard of truth. And the world is wrong, isn't it? It's upside down, backwards about everything. It's the gospel alone that turns it right side up. But the fact of the matter is, God's word is the standard for truth. Aren't you glad there is one? I mean, we live in a relativistic age these days where no, you know, hey, it works for you. As long as it works for you. Well, it doesn't work that way. I, you know, talking about truth, you try to tell people the truth, they get all upset, don't they? You try to share the gospel, they get angry, they get upset. My friend Mark Devard in a sermon, I just, I had to laugh, I thought this was funny. He said, can you imagine getting a credit card bill that accurately represents your expenditures from last month and you call up Chase and say, I want another credit card bill, I don't like this one. It's too high. Well, are you questioning the bill? Did you, do you think somebody's, no, I've got my credit card. Did, well, did you, yeah, I, but it's too high, I want a different bill. 
or, or a bank statement from CCB. My, my account's too low. I don't like it. I want a higher statement. Will you print me out a better statement, please? Or, or a doctor coming in with a, with a diagnosis, an x-ray, you have a tumor. I don't like this one. Oh, we have a nice selection of, of x-rays. Let me go. Well, here's one from Mrs. Johnson a month or two ago. Would you like this one? It's, it's good looking. She's about your size. That's ludicrous. But when you bring the gospel diagnostic to them, they get angry and upset. They get upset. Do you not understand what's at stake here? The truth says that you're not a believer in Christ and therefore you're in danger of the fire of hell. That's the truth. People get upset. Well, let God be true and every man a liar. We need to tell him the truth. Truthfulness is a communicable attribute because we are commanded to tell the truth. We're commanded to live the truth. We're commanded to be true. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not, you know, I've dealt with this with people that I'm discipling every single day. You know who I'm talking about. Anyway, in my home, there are some people that I'm working with every single day. And we're struggling with the issue of veracity. Okay? And you see, the scripture is really perfectly written. Look at Leviticus 19.11. Do not lie and do not deceive each other. You see, it's... Well, I didn't lie. Exactly. Okay, another translation is you shall not lie nor deal falsely with one another. What does it mean to deal falsely with somebody? What does that mean? To deceive them? What does that mean? Color the truth. Kind of trick them a little bit, mislead them, misdirect. Do you ever do that? Yeah. All right, we were talking about that earlier. God says you shall not do that. You are a people holy to the Lord. I never do that. Don't you do that. So, it's, it's actually perfect. Leviticus 19.36, use honest scales and honest weights and honest ephah and an honest hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Do you see that? By the way, why does he say use honest this, honest that, and then say, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt? Why, the, why do those two go together? Why does he connect them? He's honest. And he's their boss. He's their Lord. He brought them out of Egypt. And because he's honest, so we must be honest too. And you know the beauty of the gospel is someday you'll be as honest as God. This is a communicable attribute after all. Someday you will love the truth as much as God. And you will speak only the truth as God does. Isn't that wonderful? God commands that we let our yes be yes and our no no every time. Speak the truth, only the truth. Or Ecclesiastes, listen to this. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. (laughs) Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow is a mistake. I didn't mean it. (laughs) Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? He says, when you make a promise to God, keep it. Because God keeps his promises to you. All right. God's God's spirit works truth in us. And perfect truthfulness awaits us in heavenly worship. Jesus said in John 4, 23 and 24, A time is coming. And has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. He's seeking truth in you, by the way, by the Holy Spirit. He's seeking and working truth in you. And he's not going to stop till he gets it. And when he gets it, what's the truth going to be? Himself. You're going to worship him in spirit and in truth perfectly in heaven. So he's relentless about this true thing in your life until you see him face to face where you will be a perfect truth teller and you'll be giving credit and glory to God at that point for your salvation. And you'll be telling the truth, by the way. 
you will be absolutely telling them the truth. All right, moral attributes, the goodness of God, I want to skip. I'm going to come back, God willing, next time. I want to go down to love while we're here. Goodness of God is, is a great attribute. I want to talk about it, but let's skip and go to love. Now, Grudem gives a very interesting definition of love. I'm on page seven here. God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. That's interesting, isn't it? So the, the essence of love, according to Grudem, is what? Giving of yourself, self-sacrificial giving. Okay, but I want to go a little different direction than Grudem. I've got a great book here that I've been reading called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God by D.A. Carson. By the way, this belongs to your library. It just hadn't been cataloged yet. Pretty soon, one of you can take it out. But uh, it was donated among many other books. This is an excellent book. Now, what he does is he goes through the scripture and finds five different ways that the Bible speaks of the love of God. Five different categories of the love of God. Okay, category one. Actually, I'll just read all five and then we'll support them. First of all, category one is the peculiar love of the father for the son and of the son for the father. The Bible speaks of the way that the father loves the son and the son loves the father. It's in its own category. Category two, God's providential love over all that he has made. The way that God loves and cares for creation. You see that? Providentially. Category three, God's salvific stance toward his fallen world the way that God stands in a stance of love and salvation toward the whole world in one sense. Category four, God's, God's particular, effective, selecting love toward his elect. The Bible speaks of this. And category five, God's provisional or conditional love directed toward his own people conditioned on their obedience. There are some ways in which God loves you depending on whether you obey or disobey. There's some experiences of the love of God that you will have if you obey him tonight. You see, if you go home, maybe you haven't had your quiet time yet and you got, you know, some form of entertainment or quiet time. If you obey and follow, you will experience the love of God in a way that you will not if you disobey. We all know that it's true, but the scripture supports it too. Now, let's support it from scripture. First, the unique or peculiar love of the father for the son and the son for the father. John 3.35, it says, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. John 5.20 says, The Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He does. Yes, to your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. Okay, so the Father loves the Son in a very unique way. Conversely, the Son loves the Father. Look at uh, John 14.31. Jesus says, The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. The world must see that, must see it lived out. How did the world see that Jesus loved his Father? Primarily how? Crucifixion. Demonstrated Jesus' love for his Father. You see that? I will prove that I love you by obeying you. Whereas the first Adam did not obey, I will obey and I will love you by my obedience. And so there is a unique, special love, Father to Son and Son to Father. And it's different than any other kind of love, but it's related to all the others. Secondly, God's providential love over all that he's made. <clears throat> Matthew 5, and 45, Jesus said, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Do you see that? 
Well, what is the command that he gives at the beginning of these two verses? He commands you to do something. What? Love. So that we're talking about the issue of loving enemies. Love. So therefore, God loves everybody in this way. You see what I'm saying? He loves every single solitary person on the face of the earth in this way. Even Adolf Hitler? Yes. Have you ever seen Birch's Garden, the place where he used to retreat? It's a beautiful place. God spread out lavishly love for this guy, even though he was, you know, like demon-possessed guy, evil guy. And yet God rained on him. God had sun shining on him. You see what I'm saying? That's what the verses say. God treats his enemies very well, doesn't he? Very, very well. So should we. And then he talks about the birds of the air. They don't sow a reaper store away in barns and God feeds them. He cares for everything. Psalm 145, verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and he is loving toward all he has made. You see that? So God loves every single solitary human being on the face of the earth in this way. Okay, category two. Category three, God has a salvific stance toward the world in general, as a whole. What's the best verse for that? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God has a stance of I am compassionate toward this globe and the people on it. He has a yearning that the gospel be preached to the ends of the earth, a concern that, that this message get out. And... I believe rivers of blessing have flowed to every nation on earth from the cross of Christ in some way, even if they don't get saved. There are hospitals, there are benefits and blessings and earthquake relief and, and just people that love on people who will never be saved. And it flows from the cross, doesn't it? Because people like Ron and others wouldn't even be there if it weren't for the cross. It flows right from the cross, blessing and benefiting their lives. That's a general salvific stance that God has toward the whole world through the cross of Christ. But that's not enough, is it? It doesn't get you to heaven. Number four does. This is the particular, selective, powerful, effective, electing love of God that gets sinners to heaven. Does the Bible talk about this? Oh, yes, it does. As a matter of fact, if it weren't for this, you wouldn't go. Well, I don't know. I mean, I could be persuaded. No, you couldn't. I mean, God alone can change a sinner's heart. Your heart is so hard you would never believe that foolish gospel if God hadn't transformed you from within. Is that love? Oh, yes, it's love. It's the love that saves you. All right, and what does he say? Well, first of all, we know that he s selected or elected the nation of Israel, right? Deuteronomy 7. The Lord did not set his affection. What's another word for affection? Love. God didn't set his love on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, let me ask you a question. As you look at Deuteronomy 7, what is the reason that God set his love on Israel and chose them? According to those verses, why did he do it? Be because he loved them. Why did he love them? What was the reason? Does he give a reason? Just because. Because I loved you. As a matter of fact, he gives contrary reason why he didn't. That's not that. And it sure isn't because you're good people, because you're not, as we will prove very soon once you get out in the desert. I created you and I loved you. I set my love on you, not because of anything that I saw in you. For you are a wicked and stiff-necked people. He says that over and over. All right? Okay. 
All right, Ephesians, all right, how much more is it true of us? Folks, it's true of you and me, isn't it? Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely given us in the one he loves. Why did he do it? Because of love. Because of love. He set his love on you. When did he do it? According to these verses. Before the foundation of the world. Why did he do it? Because you're a great guy or gal? No. Just because he set his love on you by grace. And it saves you, doesn't it? It predestines you. It brings you to heaven. All right. Fifthly, God's provisional or conditional love directed toward his own people, conditioned on their obedience. Jude 21 says, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. What does that mean? Keep yourselves in the love of God. But while you're thinking about that, and Jesus says the same thing in John 15, 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Stop there. That is amazing. In the way that the Father loves me, I love you? Wow. Well, what's the next thing he says? Now, remain in my love. Abide, live there, set up your house there. Do you do that? Do you abide or remain in his love every moment of the day? No. All right, when do you leave the house of love? When you sin. And then he beckons you to come back and live in his love again. Every time you sin, you leave his love in this sense. Not in the eternal sense, because you can't sin your way out of the love of God eternally. As a child of God, he'll just discipline you. But in terms of that fruitful, delicious, wonderful sense of the love and affection of God, do you ever walk away from that? Sadly, you do. And I've, I've resolved many times, like, oh God, I feel your love. I feel a sense of your presence, that your affection. I don't ever want to leave. God, keep me here. But the problem is you kind of have to get up the next day and you do and you, you miss your alarm and the water's cold and you start to complain and all of a sudden you notice, wait a minute, I'm not here anymore. You know, the fact is that some experiences of God's love are conditioned on your obedience, right? Conditioned on your obedience. Exodus 20 says the same thing, Psalm 103 conditioned on obedience. Now, I'm going to make three observations from Carson then we'll finish for tonight. Based on these five ways of speaking the love of God, okay? Number one, we must not take any one of these five ways and absolutize it as though it's the only way that the Bible speaks of love. You can't do that. You have to take them all together, all right? Number two, we must not view these five ways of speaking of God's love as independent, compartmentalized loves of God. They are all God's love. This is how he loves. It's integrated. So you have to strive as best you can to think of them together. It's all the same. It's coming together. And then, I like this one. We must rethink some characteristic evangel evangelical cliches in the light of these five ways. For example, God's love is unconditional. Well, that's true of love number two and three and four but not of way five definitely. We already talked about that. And maybe not of way one. Does the father love the son unconditionally? Well, you don't nod too quickly, okay? Because I've said that unconditional love means that he doesn't see anything of value in us but loves us anyway. Is that true of the way he sees his son? That is different. 
When he looks at his son, he sees a perfect reflection of himself and he loves it because of it. So there is something in Jesus that draws out love from the father, the son. And basically that's how we get saved. He sees us in Christ, not by ourselves. All right. So at least this much is, is, is said. We cannot say that all of God's love is unconditional. There are some ways that we experience the love of God that are dependent on our obedience. Right. What about part two? All right. God loves everyone in exactly the same way. Is that true? Well, I don't think it's true of way number four or else every single solitary person on the face of the earth is going to heaven. Every single solitary person on the face of the earth will go to heaven. And it isn't uh, true of way five. But it is most definitely true of number two, number three, and number, uh, number two, and number three. God's salvific stance toward the whole world and the fact that God sends sunshine and rain and good harvest and good things to eat and friends and all that to everybody. Okay? Um, that's enough. Uh, love is communicable attribute. Just read 1 Corinthians 13. Be that way. Love the way that God loves. All right? A lot to think about tonight. A lot to think about. God willing, next time we'll talk about the goodness of God and some of the other attributes. All right, let's close in prayer and then uh, we'll be done. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to study tonight. We thank you for your mercy and your kindness to us in Christ. We acknowledge that these things are too high and too deep for us, O Lord. As it says, um, <clears throat> that we might know the, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and that we might know that love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of Christ. Father, I pray that we would know the grand canyon of your love, that we would understand the immensity of your commitment to tell the truth and of your goodness and your righteousness. Father, I thank you for those that have come to study with us tonight. And I pray that you'd be with us as we go on from here. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.